This week on Miranda Warnings, we're very excited to have Manhattan District Attorney-elect Alvin Bragg. Welcome. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversations. Congratulations to you on your election. Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, Alvin Bragg is a, a started out as a criminal defense and civil rights lawyer. He worked for the New York State Attor Attorney General's Office prosecuting public corruption and white collar crime. He was also an assistant U.S. attorney with the Southern District of New York and then returned to the New York State Attorney General's Office as chief deputy attorney general and led the unit investigating police killings of unarmed civilians. Uh, in his private practice, he also represents the family of Eric Garner, who died in 2014 following a police chokehold. Now, Mr. Bragg, you come to the district attorney's office with uh, a background of both prosecution uh, as well as criminal defense. Tell us how that is going to inform your time as district attorney. So, yeah, so yes, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm very excited uh, about, you know, what the future holds. And I think my experiences, you know, as a, as a criminal defense lawyer early in my career, uh, civil rights lawyer throughout and a prosecutor really reflect, uh, you know, a, a, a approach of an intersection, I've read the intersection of, of, of a number of issues, which I think are implicated, uh, you know, by a lot of the work that the district attorney's office does. So I think th th those experiences, I mean, just to use one example, you mentioned the, the, the Garner matter, you know, being familiar professionally uh, with, um, you know, excessive force cases, uh, you know, we have a unit in the, in the district attorney's office that, that's going to be investigating that, that informs it. But also in every case, when when I was, uh, you know, a line assistant uh, in the Southern District of New York, when I put on police officers, you know, informed by my civil rights work and also informed by my personal experience, I mean, having been, you know, stopped a number of times by police. So I think it all, you know, goes together. And of course, there are experiences I haven't had, uh, you know, being, a, you know, for example, a little, uh, you know, uh, uh, victims of certain types of crimes. We want to bring those voices inside the office and really have a full, rich uh, chorus of voices inside the office from a number of different perspectives. And so you're calling for some sweeping changes to how the district attorney's office operates. Uh, I'd like to talk about some of them, uh, one of which is you're going to have a police integrity unit uh, that reports directly to you. Uh, tell us uh, about that and, and why you think that's important. Definitely. So, you know, I've done I've, in terms of, you know, reporting directly to me, I've just done a lot of work in this space, as you mentioned, representing Miss um, Carr and the in our action for transparency against the city, um, you know, leading a similar unit at the attorney general's office. And then even earlier in my career, uh, you know, doing civil matters this way. So I've got I've got a lot of expertise in this area. Um, there's a unit that actually just started about six months ago that district attorney Vance uh, started. So there's a unit up and running. Um, and have that unit report directly to me. And yeah, I think, I think this is really a public safety issue. Uh, we know from the data, we know from, uh, you know, post-George Floyd, post-Eric Garner, those kind of incidents, you know, 911 calls go down, trust in police go down. And so, you know, what, I, what I've told my law enforcement partners throughout my career, you know, the, the person you stop on a Monday could be your, your witness on a Wednesday and could be your victim on a Friday. So those encounters uh, matter. Uh, because if people don't trust uh, the police, we can't make cases. So I, I, I view it as their civil rights cases, of course, but they're also uh, inextricably linked with public safety. So in your career, you've worked on investigating uh, police misconduct. 
Uh, and obviously that is a public safety issue as well. Uh, now, do you think you're gonna, there's gonna be any tension there because of your, your prior work on police misconduct and your emphasis on that? And now you're gonna have to have the police obviously testifying on behalf of your prosecutions? So, you know, I've been dealing with this duality for, you know, 20 plus years. When I was a uh, AUSA in the Southern District, I, I prosecuted an FBI agent for for uh, lying. And, you know, I was at the same time working with the FBI on kind of traditional uh, matters. And I've had that conversation where they say, well, you know, what are you doing? We thought you were, were on our side. And I say, well, look, do you lie? Do you obstruct justice? Um, it's not me that you should be concerned about. It's your soon-to-be former colleague's conduct because he's eroding uh confidence in what you do he's ruining your brand if you will uh, and so i've had that conversation a lot um you know obviously it's not an easy conversation i'm, I'm not going to say that I've, I've won all hearts and minds but i think it's important to have the conversation i had it institutionally in leadership when i was the chief deputy in the attorney general's office with our own investigators and with uh police who we dealt with externally. So I'm comfortable with it. I'm used to it. I, I sort of specialize in having uncomfortable conversations. I think we talk about it. We form relationships. Um, you know, it's like it's like our family and our friends. We're not going to agree on everything, but we we need to have a, a spirit of respect and open conversation and be talking and be talking about that which we agree on and that which we don't. And now, uh, obviously, you'll be on the inside uh, as district attorney, uh, making sure that uh, there is confidence in our system and probably across the board, that's one of the most important things we can do both for uh, our law enforcement and for our public. You um, are also forming a unit dedicated, dedicated to freeing those who were wrongfully convicted. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, the emphasis on, on wrongful convictions. Right. So, you know, I, I am and you mentioned some of the you know changes I wanted to do, uh, you know, at the top. I, I'm you know really fortunate not to be, you know, the first who's you know proposed these changes. I view myself as sort of a 2.0 or 3.0 uh, 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 a type of uh, a candidate in this regard. And uh, the 1.0 for me is, um, you know, my friend, uh, the late Ken Thompson, who you know pioneered uh, yes. really a new approach on conviction review and exoneration. So. You know, uh, we're gonna we're gonna copy that model. You know, I believe I, I believe in uh, you know give attribution, but if something is working, let's borrow it. Uh, and I think we need to have a heavy heavy emphasis on it. We looked at what he's done in Brooklyn. We've been talking with you know Barry Sheck and Peter Newfell at the Innocence Project. Um, you know, the Manhattan DA's office obviously is um, you know uh, uh, at home. I think to sort of you know one of the the, the most uh, talked about matters in this space, sort of uh, you know the exonerated five. Uh, who are, you know, about my age, also from Harlem, that, that uh, um, you know, is something I sort of grew up with and, um, you know, followed closely at the time. So this is going to be a, a significant emphasis. And, and, and look, I think, again, you know, this is something on which there should be lots of consensus, just like we don't want uh, police excessive force. I don't think anyone wants anyone who uh, was wrongfully corrected, convicted uh, incarcerated. And so it's just about kind of putting the resources where, where our, our, our principles lie. Uh, and, and we're going to scale that up and, and, and really make that a priority in the office. 
Yeah, no, I, I certainly understand that uh, uh, several years ago, the New York State Bar Association worked with the District Attorneys Association and the Innocence Project and uh, Barry Sheck. And we, uh, towards uh, legislation related to uh, wrongful convictions, and uh, there was a lot of common ground. Uh, we worked on legislation regarding criminal interrogation, recording criminal interrogations, for example, which both sides felt would be helpful to both prosecuting those that were, were uh, guilty and, and helping those that were innocent. Yeah, I think it's one thing, you know, having spent a lot of time in the civil rights community and a lot of time, you know, with prosecutors, you know, I, you know, I think there are a lot of things in which, um, and I don't want to gloss things over, there are obviously significant disagreements in lots of areas, but I think there's a lot of things in which there are, are, are broad common objectives. And the more we talk with one another, I mean, this is, uh, this is again, not a new idea of mine, uh, but in our body politic, we spend so much time in these kind of uh, uh, kind of echo chambers, just talking to people who have our same views and do exactly what we do. Um, that's what, you know, the State Bar Association is phenomenal. You know, I'm, I'm a professor at New York Law School, and I love the academic setting where we just are encouraging and fostering an exchange of ideas. And I think the more we talk, uh, you know, we realize what we have in common and we, we sharpen ways that we can move towards that. So that's going to that's how I, I campaign and that's how we're going to run the office with sort of a spirit of inclusion. Doesn't mean we're always going to agree with everyone, but we're, we can always talk. And, and, and I think it does. You know, it's the marketplace of ideas. Right. It sharpens uh, the outcome. It was a, a recent uh, very public exoneration involving uh, those two individuals that were uh, found guilty of. Uh, of killing Malcolm X uh, 55 years ago, uh, who recently were exonerated as a result of an investigation by your predecessor, uh, Cy Vance. Uh, tell us your perspective on, on that case and, and what that means. You know, so I'm in an interesting position where, you know, I, I, I don't know any more than the public at this moment, right? We're, we're in the middle of a transition and we're we're learning about the offices of resources and sort of, you know, aggregate way, but don't don't have, uh, you know, case specific information. But I watched the documentary, um, you know, um, talked to, uh, you know, the, the family and obviously just as someone who's a Harlem resident, a student of the civil rights movement, uh, know the significance of that matter uh, and uh, was very encouraged to see. Um, you know, the, 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 I guess it hasn't been formally announced yet, but, but the, the news of an announcement to come, uh, and this is important and it's important to do, uh, these lookbacks and some will say, I've heard some say, oh, well, you know, you know, that was so long ago, it's like the, but, 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 but the, the wounds remain and, uh, you know, it, there is, it's so, so important, um, to address the wrongs, uh, to set the record right. Uh, and, and not just in, you know, these high profile matters it means means a lot, obviously, here, but right. across the board, it's important. One of the other areas that you want to uh, work on is changing the focus of your uh, sex crimes unit to one that is more survivor centered. Uh, what type of uh, programs are you anticipating in that regard? So this is what I, I meant earlier when I'm bringing the, the, the voices inside the office. One thing. Uh, that you know, was really an education for me. I've done some work in this space before, uh, but I spent a lot of time with survivors, you know, not talking about a specific case, but talking about the process uh, and how uh, the process of coming forward 
uh, and going through the system just was a, a coarseness, uh, a, a feeling like a piece of evidence as opposed to a human. Uh, and so we want to we want to incorporate those thoughts. We want to bring those voices inside the office uh, and have everything we do kind of be centered around uh, their trauma. Obviously, we want to we want to bring cases. We want to do challenging cases, but at the center of everything um, is that is kind of the trauma and the process, sort of the 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 uh, procedural justice, if you will. Uh, it's it's very important, and I'm glad you mentioned it because uh, yeah, I want I want to do conviction review. We're going to do, uh, we, we, you know, we're going to do police integrity, you know, but we're also going to do, uh, uh, you know, sex trafficking, sexual assaults. I'm deeply concerned uh, about the uptick in gun violence, which is, you know, affecting my my little, like where I live, my literal neighborhood. Um, and so, you know, the two are not, you know, separate, right? They really are bound up I mean, in our areas where we have, uh, you know, the, the, the most significant uh, uh police integrity issues historically are the issues where we have historically uh, the, the most uh, traditional crime. Uh, so they go together. And I, and I think talking about them as a cohesive whole is really important uh, to me. Uh, one of the other uh, programs that you have or initiatives is to reduce the prosecution of low level offenses. So maybe you can tell me what kind of things might I be able to get away with when I'm in Manhattan now? Uh, can I jaywalk? Uh, with uh, with freedom, I, I believe you've been able to jaywalk uh, in Manhattan <laughs> freedom my entire life. Uh, uh, with, with maybe say for a couple of years in there. Um, but look, I, I you know the the theory here is you know not you know obviously you're not joking that that like um, we we want to kind of give free passes in a, in a, in, a, in a broad sense, but it's it's to ask the the more introspective question of of what conduct warrants. A criminal sanction, you know, the, 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 the most profound government power. Uh, and then to what effect, uh, you know, so uh, when, we, when we're talking about one that the district attorneys already started doing, you know, fair evasion, um, you know, what are we talking about? Can we, you know, invest that money in sort of infrastructure and view that differently? So to me, it's what lever of government power, I'm gonna give you an example um, that goes back to the, the Garner matter, um, untaxed cigarette sales. It was the highest levels of NYPD several years ago. They decided to prioritize that, that kind of you know, quote unquote quality of life offense um, and going street corner to street corner, uh, you know, in my view, to the, to the detriment of, of justice and safety, you know, arresting a number of young black and Latino men, I think to little public safety benefit. Uh, we got the same concern uh, 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 raised with us at the attorney general's office uh, and we took a different approach. We ended up suing Federal Express and UPS, two carriers who were shipping thousands and thousands of untaxed cigarettes, right? We did what lawyers do. We went to court. Uh, one of the matters went to trial. Um, you know, no one's human dignity was, uh, you know, was uh, stepped on. No one died, certainly. Uh, we ended up getting more than $100 million back uh, for the state and city public fist. So I won't say that we solved that issue, but so we just pulled a different level of government power. And I think it's far more effective. You know, we got a a result uh, we, we could literally count it in dollars, uh, but also in, in, in those untaxed cigarettes off the streets. So just being being very thoughtful about when we use the power of incarceration. Well, I'd like to stick on this a little bit because this is a theme that is different. I mean, you've talked about trying to get more data regarding racial disparities in prosecution. And oftentimes when you have these low level crimes, 
they can be either enforced or or look the other way, depending on what the police officer's uh, uh, predilections are. Uh, but I recall uh, when we had Mayor Giuliani some many years ago, um, he made a point of saying, we are gonna go after every small crime in the city, uh, including jaywalking, because his position was at the time that we need to have respect for the law and for law enforcement. And by going after the small crimes, uh, it would encourage and help law enforcement in the big picture. Now, um, your feeling is uh, a little bit different that sometimes these low level crimes have been uh, perhaps uh, not enforced uh, fairly and actually had the opposite effect uh, as far as people's respect for law enforcement and our laws. Yeah, I, I, I lived through that era, right? I, and I reject that thesis uh, based on uh, my own personal experience and some professional experience. I could point to dozens of people who didn't talk to police for decades because of, you know, uh, being, you know, stopped for uh, minor issues, pockets tossed, uh, uh, you know, things it became a daily occurrence when I was growing up in Harlem, um, you know, feeling like a police state. You know, you, you know, one thing that is so important to the administration of justice is confidence in it. Uh, and so people feel like, look, you're stopping me for jaywalking. But and this is a, this is a literal example. <clears throat> Everyone knew where you could buy drugs uh, on my block. Everyone knew. But you're going to stop the 13 year old for jaywalking. But you're not going to deal with the significant drug trafficking. So I, I, I lived through that. I think it eroded trust. And it's just a misplace of, of, of resources. I've worked with law enforcement for 20 plus years. I don't want to be stopping people for jaywalking. They don't want to be doing homeless sweeps. They want to do the kind of cases I did uh, as a federal prosecutor or at the attorney general's office. We want to be looking at big gun cases. We want to be looking at, you know, uh, cases that are involving significant quantity of drugs. This is what people are talking about, human trafficking, sexual assault. This is what people sit around the kitchen table talking about. Uh, and then as to the lower things, we don't have to ignore them. We just have to use different government power. So, uh, you know, Mayor Giuliani's theory was based on the broken windows thesis. If you look back, uh, you know, the living living co-author, uh, you know, wrote a piece 10 years later and said, you know, look, we said, yes, if there's one broken window and no one fixes it, it becomes two, it becomes five, and it leads to disorder. But we didn't say that the necessary response is to lock up the kid who threw the rock through the window. We said, fix the window, call Department of Buildings. So just again, going back to being creative about which lever of government power we use, and then, and then saving our, 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 our police resources for the people who are harming people. You know, we've got, I mean, I'm deeply concerned about, uh, you know, the uptick in guns. Like, let's direct our police resources there, you know, and not so we keep on using jaywalking, so I'll just use it as a placeholder. Um, you know, th that's where we need our, 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 our trained law enforcement, you know, for the broken window, for the you know, two seats on the subway, for the, you know, for the other lower level, we've got people who are trained to respond to that, you know, whether it's my dad ran homeless services, let them deal with uh, the, the homeless crisis. They're better trained to do it. They're better equipped. And what we're doing now just doesn't work, right? We, 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 we send people for low level matters to Rikers for, you know, whatever, you know, period of time, three months, four months, and they come right back and everyone then wants to bemoan, oh, on the eighth arrest, you know, something really bad happened. You know, why was this person let out? Now, the issue is we had seven points of interaction where we could have diverted to services, whether it's mental health or, or substance use. Let's do that. Uh, let's use our resources wisely 
And then again, on the stuff that matters, the, the stuff that harms us, let's send the police and do sophisticated gun traffic investigations, the type of work that I did at the attorney general's office. Let's talk a little bit about the use of, of police resources. And I'd like to hear your thoughts on this. You know, over the last two years, and I think there's been a, a combination of events. One, of course, is the pandemic, uh, which has really changed uh, how people interact, uh, of course, in Manhattan and around the country. The other is uh, the movement of, uh, you know, defunding the police, uh, where people are in the streets and, you know, uh, protesting. Uh, the police, and this was really more two summers ago. But since that time, uh, at least in Manhattan, it seems as though the police's the police's role in policing the streets has changed. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? And do you have any thoughts on what the police's role is on uh, policing the streets in Manhattan? Yeah. So, so I mean, I'll start with you know the the, the fun conversation, which is. You know, not not a term that 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 I've I've used, but but the concept of investment is one that I'm you know I know you know sort of very well. You know, my parents, my mom was an educator, my dad ran homeless shelters, and I believe deeply that we should let people like that lead in those spaces. Um, and I've been in law enforcement for 20 years or so. Uh, never met uh, a police officer, or a federal agent who you know went into that line of work to do a homeless sweep. Um, they want to be working on cases that directly impact public safety. Uh, so, but, but yes, we need uh, to have, I think we shouldn't have our police responding to sort of homelessness. And I would love to get uh, mental health professionals. And we have some pilot programs in Manhattan being the first responders to mental health uh, incidents that, that don't present, um, you know, immediate public safety issues. Uh, so, I'm all for pulling the police out of that, but then we have to invest in those areas, right? We, we, we have to have our response. I mean, I think that's what, what people who are concerned about quality of life uh, and, and, and talk about that, I think are rightly concerned if we say we're gonna do nothing, right? That's not the answer. Um, the answer is to respond with the right government tool. Um, and, and so that we need to have the investment at the same time we're saying we don't want police to do that. And then we have to have the police engage uh, where they are and should be. So you know, I've had a shooting on my block within the last couple of weeks. There have been a few right around uh, in my neighborhood, you know, and, and we've been out with the police and we've been out with, uh, you know, community violence interrupters and we're out with clergy working together. Um, to me, that's, that's, that's uh, you know, kind of approach of all of the above, all of the community leaders together, you know, whether it's, you know, we're out kind of taking back a street corner, out having a public dialogue, um, you know, this fiction that, you know, people only want fairness and don't want safety or they have to choose between the two. You know, I don't want that kind of government. That's a false dichotomy. And so uh, I, I think in the conversations I've been having with uh, law enforcement are around and particularly recently um, guns. And I, so I know they are engaged on that. And I think we need to be supporting them in that. And I think at the, at the same time, if someone like me is asking to, them to pull back in other spaces, that's a we need other parts of government stepping into and providing uh, and ramping up the, the, the social services. So I'm looking forward to continuing that conversation um, in January. And obviously, we'll have a sort of a reboot in the city with, um, you know, two thirds or so of the city council being new, obviously, um, a, a new mayor and a new district attorney. And I, and I think that's really having those conversations together, talking about the social services and the public safety in one breath. And as the police, what I would say, what I always uh, try to do is when I talk about what I don't want officers to do, I also want to talk about what I want them to do. They're human, 
right? They want to they want to be and need to be affirmed in their role too. And I believe it's a central role, uh, right? I'm I talked about my 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 late mother and father. Yeah, if I want someone to to educate someone, my mother's colleagues. I want delivery of social services. My father's colleagues. If they can do it, they should be doing it. But we, I would never send my mom and my dad after you know uh, uh, the the you know the violent groups that were that, that I prosecuted. I mean, that's not their role. That's what we need police officers for, and we need to be articulating that. So, so your your feeling is that the the police officer's role uh, needs to be. Uh, a, a little more focused, um, and that uh, is it. Perhaps that uh, we've put a lot of other non-law enforcement issues on the police, and now they really should be getting back to the law enforcement part. Certainly, that's what they're trained to do. That's why people go to the academy, um, uh, and and we also have urgent needs, right? It's not as if we don't have urgent uh, uh, public right. safety needs. I mean, you know that you know. We're, I hear people say all the time, it's like the 80s. You know, I was here in the 80s. It's not like the 80s and the data doesn't suggest that. But, you know, shootings are on the rise. That's, you know, indisputable. And, you know, this is a nationwide, uh, you know, phenomenon. And yeah, let's direct our resources there. Um, and, and, and I think, you know, we, we've got um, very sophisticated, you know, it's not just the NYP. We've got other, you know, we've got the state police, which working with the attorney general's office. We've got, you know, federal agents who will help on these issues, I know the main, main justice in DC, Department of Justice, uh, you know, uh, has done an announcement on guns as well. Uh, and one thing I'm really looking forward to is you know, having been at the state attorney general's office, having been a federal prosecutor, uh, I, I know the sort of core competencies of the various offices and the interests. And I think there's really incredible potential for collaboration. Everyone always wants to talk about these jurisdictional, you know, uh, turf wars, if you will. I, I think there's great potential for kind of complementary uh, uh, skill sets working together, uh, particularly on the issue of guns, which obviously are traveling across state lines. Right. You've mentioned guns a couple of times, and I know that you want to uh, have a greater focus on tracing guns that uh, are involved in crimes. I'd like to hear your thoughts on uh, what's called a ghost gun. Guns where uh, component parts are you know, mailed to somebody or picked up by somebody, and then the person actually makes a gun and it's virtually untraceable. Uh, well, let, let me know your thoughts on that and what we can do about that. It was, you know, it's deeply problematic. And when I was at the attorney general's office, we, we, uh, we, we pushed back on it. It was, the, we saw it as a developing trend. Then uh, we've had recently in our state, some legislation, which I think is going to go a long way uh, in, in terms of helping, but it's, in, in the gun space, I would say the two things that are really alarming is ghost guns, because a big piece of what I want to do on gun trafficking is to trace them, right? When I was at the attorney general's office, we, we had some very smart data folks who they looked at every single gun found in a crime scene in the state of New York and traced it back to its last lawful sale. It's a literal pathway for the gun. Uh, and so if you've got a place that is uh, selling, you know, 30 guns that end up at a crime scene within a year. But we need to circle that on the map and build an investigation. Are they complicit? Are they lax? What's going on? And that's when I talk about some of the federal state partnerships. Uh, but ghost guns defy that, right? Because they don't have the tracking on them. So uh, I think our legislation is going to help. I think focusing on the component parts is very important. Uh, but that's that's an issue. And the second issue is the case that was, you know, argued um, by our, our Solicitor General, Barbara Underwood, uh, on guns before the Supreme Court. Uh, you know, a big premise of, 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 of my gun plan as district attorney is enforcing our state laws. 
and if the Supreme Court changes those laws on concealed carry, uh, to me, that's a very scary proposition, both as how, how to build investigations uh, and then practically, you know, and I, I'm hoping if they rule against us that they put some guardrails in place, but the notion, you know, for, for, for your downstate members of, of you know, uh, two people with concealed carry guns on the like, you know, two, two train line on 96th Street, getting into a relatively routine argument about the train doors closing, uh, but they both got guns on them and uh, tempers flare. I think we all know how that ends. Uh, so those are two things that that um, I'm keeping a close eye on because they, they would they would stymie uh, the plans I have to address guns in Manhattan. Well, there's, you know, there's a line of thinking that, okay, it's great to have these laws like the one that you're talking about that's now being challenged at the Supreme Court regarding whether you can have a, uh, a concealed carry and, and whether the New York law is uh, constitutional or unconstitutional. It's great to have these laws. People that comply with them are law-abiding citizens that, that actually are carrying a gun. But if we have something like a ghost gun where you're not getting a license, then we have uh, people that are complying with the law uh, and the the others are not complying and they're going to have these these ghost guns w- without uh, getting a license, without them even being traceable. And it seems like a, a, a very difficult problem to be able to address. It, it, it is. And, and I mean, I think you, you just you know, I'm not going to try to improve upon what you just said, because I think you, you you just put, your, you know, the nail on the head. Uh, I think regulation of the component parts uh, is important, uh, which which we've seen recently. Uh, but yeah, it's a scary proposition. You put the two together, right? I mean, if you can if you if you if you can carry a gun that can be traced legally, so we, you know it kind of takes away the sort of tracing alone uh, 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 component. And if we've got guns out here that can't even be traced, uh, that that makes enforcement of uh, 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 and keeping the guns off the street. Because I think a lot of what we've seen is 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 anecdotally the uptick. You know, is among uh, younger people, uh, and and uh, the kind of thing that that, and again, this is qualitative. Uh, in years past, might have been a, a fist fight, not that knives are great, but might have been you know a knife. And, and now it's with guns, which obviously uh, you know ha- can do do far greater and wider wider harm. All right. Now you're going to be inheriting responsibility for many cases that have already been. Uh, uh, commenced and are under investigation by your predecessor, uh, one of which is the district attorney's investigation against the Trump organization. Uh, while you were at uh, the New York State Attorney General's office, you were part of the team that, that sued the Trump organization for improper use of charitable funds. Uh, what's your take on the case that's pending against the Trump organization now at the district attorney's office? So you know, again, I don't know anything that not not in the public domain. I'm obviously uh, uh, watching it closely. Our matter at the Attorney General's office involved the there was a, the Trump Foundation, who we settled with. Um, so obviously, a, a kind of you know within the, the, the you know an, another Trump organization, but the the not for profit. Um, but you know, following it closely, you know, looking to uh, you know hit hit the ground running. I mean, I'm, I'm familiar with. Um, either by reputation or personally, members of the team. Uh, I've worked on a lot of complex white collar matters coming into a number of them midstream. Uh, so yeah. you know, just give folks that assurance that we sort of will, will, will have a good team in place 
Uh, and, you know, we'll we'll see on January 1 where they are. Um, and like I've done, you know, throughout my career, whether it's, you know, a, a complex matter like the Trump Foundation, whether it's some of the public corruption work I've done, uh, you know, prosecuting two mayors, one for campaign finance fraud and, uh, you know, one for bribery uh, or other matters like that. Just, you know, kind of go where the facts take us, you know, nothing, nothing more, nothing less. That's the job. And that's what we're going to do. So when, when you start um, in January, uh, the city is also going to have a new mayor, uh, Eric Adams, and uh, he has his uh, own agenda, obviously, uh, much of which is informed by his uh, time uh, in law enforcement. Um, although it seems as though he's, his focus is obviously a little bit different than yours, He's called for a couple of things like reinstating the uh, police department's plain clothes, anti-crime unit, uh, overhauling uh, bail, bail reforms that have been uh, bail reform legislation that's been uh, changed in the past, some of which um, is not actually on your uh, focus. Uh, what's your relationship with the mayor and, and how do you intend to deal with some of the uh, the differences in uh, thoughts on focus uh, that the two of you have. So, so the mayor elect and I have been talking and we have a, a good relationship, a developing relationship. You know, we didn't know each other before this year, but we, we, you know, we met and he actually invited me to meet uh, back in April and we met and we, we talked. So this was long before it was clear, at least to me that uh, I would be the DA elect and he'd be the mayor elect and had a great conversation. You know, as you mentioned, there's shared experiences uh, you know, he talks a lot about, you know, his uh, early experiences with the police and uh, the way he was treated being a driver from the go uh, and join the police department. I talk a lot about my early experiences with the police and how that informed uh, uh, my decision ultimately to be a prosecutor. Uh, and then we've obviously both, you know, you know worked on uh, cases involving public safety, um, but also care deeply about about fairness and police accountability. Uh, he's talked also a lot about, um, you know, the front end of the equation. Uh, um, diversion, investment, you know, talks about investment in education, talks about uh, the, the, the rate of dyslexia uh, in those who are, um, uh, um, are on Rikers. So there's a lot of common ground, a lot of places to work. Um, we're certainly going to have the conversation about plain clothes. Um, he's talked about bringing back, talk about improving it. You know, I, I, I uh, really want to listen to ways in which he wants to improve it, because to me, you know, certainly that group I'm concerned as I think, as, a, as I think he is, I don't want to speak for him, but you know about the 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 the, the issues in the past, you know, um, uh, like uh, you know Amadou Diallo. Um, so I didn't want to talk about it. And I've been a part of when I talk about gun trafficking and doing long term cases. You know, those kind of cases involve undercover work. Um, so I'm not a stranger to um, you know those cases involving undercover work. I just think it needs to be done. Um, uh, you know, with a particular. Uh, investigation in mind, you know, um, constrained under the supervision of uh, prosecutors. Um, you know, when I think about the, you know, just to go back to Amr Diallo, I mean, that, you know, th there was a, there's an arbitrariness there. There was a, you know, you know, they mistook someone for a cell phone where they, was that part of a long-term investigation? I don't think so. So I'm for building and constructing organizations to dismantle, um, you know, enterprises uh, that, that are uh, engaged in, in violence. Uh, and, and, but I do have, you know, a discussion I want to have with the mayor-elect. And then, like I said, we've been talking. So I look forward to hearing how he says he wants to do it differently. 
Well, Manhattan District Attorney-elect Alvin Bragg, I want to thank you for sharing your thoughts here on Miranda warnings. I want to thank you for your past service to our state and to our city. And thank you also for bringing your uh, ample uh, experience now to the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. Uh, thank you very much uh, for your time. We have uh, a more lighthearted feature on Miranda warnings called Music Book or movie where you can share with us uh, either related to what we're talking about or unrelated, uh, something that uh, is meaningful to you in the artistic realm. Oh, wow. So that's, that's, that's like a, that's broad. Yeah. Uh, um, you can, you can do it, you know, as broad as you want. If you want to talk about your favorite Miranda warnings podcast, uh, that would be okay. <laughs> I, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna go and maybe this is a little too serious, but I but but I'm gonna talk about you know sort of current um, Broadway and and the opera. I, I saw Fire uh, Shut Up uh, in the Bones uh, very recently, and I just think that 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 our arts coming back is uh, you know very important for our public safety. I mean, very important for a lot of our our city. So. Um, uh, I don't know if that's one. Uh, usually, usually my my pop culture does not run to the high arts, and I fear that 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 that, that my my taste may run to the low lower end, below below the uh, parameters uh, uh, of uh, you know '80s uh, syndication sitcoms. Um, but but I think in the moment, really bringing our our, our Broadway back and supporting, uh, and I've been trying to go out and do my part and. Uh, saw saw Passover recently, um, uh, and so I would encourage folks to get out. We need to support our arts, um, uh, art community, which I think is really related to our safety. We're built around density in New York City, um, so we need people to, to go out, and then the, the, the downstream commerce that comes from that is important, too. Manhattan District Attorney-elect Alvin Bragg, uh, thank you so much uh, again for your service and for being with us on Miranda Warnings. Thank you so much for having me. And I look forward to working with the uh, with the Bar Association. Yes, we do too. Uh, we look forward to working with you and we hope to have you on again sometime. Great, great. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks. If you like Miranda Warnings, you have the right to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.